Reg will appreciate what I'm getting ready to tell you. Sometimes it's hard to zero in on a message. Sometimes the Lord gives us one, two, or three, and we know you can't preach all of them. And so we have to finally pray and pray and pray and zero in on one. I want to look today at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 down through 22. I want to preach on the complacent church. And I think you'll see the picture of many churches that are operating today, not operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. Just they're just there. They're meeting, they're singing, they're doing some preaching, maybe of God's word and maybe not. But they're complacent about their situation that they're in. And it's easy to get that way. It's easy as a pastor and a preacher to get complacent about your situation. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He said, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You need to remember that because very, very important there what he said. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods. Sounds like the church of today, doesn't it? People today are rich compared to uh, other people in this world. Uh, a lot of people have three or four four-wheel drive vehicles in the driveway and, and new cars and two or three homes and so forth. Notice, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And notice this, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's stand this morning as we go to God in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful this morning, God, for this service. I thank God for everything that's been said and done, for the good teaching uh, there in Genesis and Sunday school. Thankful for the good singing, Lord. People sing with their heart. We appreciate that. I just pray, God, you'd bless the preaching of your word right now. Uh, Lord, I've always feel so uh, unworthy of being able to take God's word and to try to rightly divide it. But I know, God, that you'll help me. You'll send the Spirit of God down this morning to rightly divide the word of truth. I love you, Lord. I thank you for salvation. Thank you for my family. Thank you for Ramona. Thank you, God, for everything you've done for me. Went through some hard times, but God, you've always been there. And Lord, we're thankful for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, as I read this passage of Scripture, I realize that the letters to the seven churches are God's x-rays, and they're given to us that we might examine our own lives and our own ministries. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 17, the Bible says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? And so the Bible says there that judgment is going to come to this world, but first it must begin at the house of God. Now, the scripture here is a refining fire that's aimed at returning the church to its founder, the Lord Jesus Christ.
In most of these letters that we read here in the book of Revelation, we find rebuke as well as encouragement. I know of churches that have started well, but often don't finish well. Now, I've been in the ministry over 40 years. I can think of churches, a brother pastor at one time that people were continually walking the aisles for salvation. They were continually being baptized. The church was continually growing in number as well as in spirit. And today, some of those churches are not even operating. Today, some of those churches have the doors closed and the doors are locked and you couldn't get in that church to pray if you wanted to. I began to think about that as I read this and I thought, well, why don't they finish well? Might be a lot of reasons. I think one thing is they become complacent in their walk with God. I began to think maybe sometimes they're using the wrong Bible. Somebody asked me about the big revival uh, that's going on that we hear so much about right now. And uh, they, they asked me, what do you think about it? I said, well, what Bible are they using? I said, if not use the King James Bible, it's not a true revival. And so I went online and began to watch everything. It reminds me when I was a, a sophomore and junior in, in high school over here, uh, they had what they call pep rallies. And they would, about three o'clock in the afternoon, they would empty the, the school and go into the gymnasium. And the cheerleaders were there and they were kicking up their dresses so you could see their underwear. And they had a, a glee club or a pep club. And they would be cheered and cheered and cheered and trying to pump everybody up because the game was going to be that night. Yeah. That's exactly what I saw when I saw the videos of that, of that so-called revival. Amen. I don't look at that as a revival. No. I, when I say think of revival, I think of God's word being preached. Amen. I think of a song being sung from the old hymnals and, and songs that, that for years now have moved my heart and moved my spirit and have helped me to get down life's road a little further. Churches start well, but often don't finish well. I believe it's because the members want to participate in the worldliness of an affluent society, the church will face the judgment of the Lord. The Laodicean church here has become complacent about the cause of Christ because its members were immersed in the worldly activities of the affluent society in which they lived. And Jesus tells them he would not accept their lukewarm condition and their lukewarm attitude towards him. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, this is the seventh and concluding message to the seven church of Asia. It's addressed to the angel of the church of Laodicea, and that's the pastor. The city was situated about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia on the road to Colossae at the intersection of the three important roads. It was one of the richest commercial centers in the world and a picture of an affluent society. Laodicea was a prominent center of banking and industry. The city was famous for its beautiful glossy black wool used to make clothing and carpets. A pharmaceutical ISAB made in the city was exported far and wide. The city of Laodicea was rich and so were the people of its church. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 7, there's a man mentioned there by the name of Epaphras, and apparently this church had been started by uh, this man, Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's for you a faithful minister of Christ. He started it, probably started out well for the Lord, but then something happened. Maybe he passed from the scene. Maybe God called him somewhere else. But I believe they become complacent about the things of God. And I just pray today that nobody will leave here that's a child of God. I'd be complacent about the Word of God. I'd be complacent about the church that you attend. I'd be complacent about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God gives his titles there in the second part of verse number 14. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen... Look at that word, amen. And then the Bible says he calls himself the faithful and true witness, 
He's the source of creation. And God says this. He presents himself as the amen. Now, we look at the word amen. It means truth. We don't hear a lot of amens anymore. When I first started preaching and pastor can can verify this. You go to church and preach a revival. Amen's all over the house. I mean, men and women, amen, amen, amen. Every one time I was preaching a little old church and I began to talk about Abraham taking his son Isaac upon Mount Moriah there and offering him. And all of a sudden I heard a lady begin to holler and she began to shout. And she, and she didn't apologize for it. She, and, and men began to say amen. And boy, I tell you, revival broke out for a few minutes there. Now some of you, it scare you plumb to death that happened in the service here this morning. I mean, it would. It would scare you to death. You wouldn't know what to do. But also, amen means so be it. It means let it stand. And it's translated sometimes in the New Testament as verily or truly when part of the gospel decorations of Jesus Christ. As a title title of Christ, it indicates His sovereignty and the certainty of the fulfillment of His promises. Aren't you glad He's true about His promises? He says he'd never leave us nor forsake us. He said if we'll call upon his name, he'll save you. Listen, you may be listening online this morning and you may be sitting here in this sanctuary today and you know you're lost without God. All you have to do is call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I remember the day that I called upon the name of the Lord. A little 11-year-old boy down south in a little church down here. And the preacher preached that Sunday night. And he didn't have any idea that God was dealing with me. But I tell you what, I felt hell so hot I couldn't hardly stand it. And I got up and I made my way to that altar. Let me tell you, you don't have to come to this altar. You can get saved where you're sitting right now. You don't have to wait till invitation time. You can get saved today. You can get saved in your home if you're listening online. I just want to say I remember I got saved that night. That's been different ever since. Have I been faithful to everything God told me to do? Absolutely not. But I can tell you one thing. He's faithful. The Bible said He's a faithful and a true witness. That gives special meaning to the words to me as far as, as which follow here in this scripture. He's the source, the fountain head of creation. I appreciate the pastor starting in Genesis chapter 1. Verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I tell you, we've got away from that. We've got away from it. Until we get back to it, we're not going to have revival. I think revival can start right there, Pastor. Revival can start right there. Let's look at the criticism, verse 15 and 16 and 17. He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that were cold or hot. Now notice there, verse 15, Christ is looking at the church. He says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know what you're not doing. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. This letter has no word of commendation. Neither is any word of censure for false teaching or immorality. As far as I know, no immorality going on. No false teaching going on. They were teaching the true word of God. The trouble at Laodicea is that they were neither hot nor cold. And these words are striking and we are left no doubt concerning their meaning. Cold means icy cold and hot means boiling hot. I want my drink either hot or cold. Now, I've had voice trouble the last little while. And uh, Ramona went online and said, you need to be drinking hot tea. And so we begin to drink hot tea. Well, let's help my voice some. That hot tea has. I really better have cold tea. I like hot coffee. I can stand hot tea. I like hot coffee. I like cold water. I mean, you can't get it cold enough to suit me. But 
He said, hey, I wish you were either ice cold or you were piping hot. This here, this middle of the road, just not getting it. And that's the problem with a lot of churches today. Not just this church here that I'm preaching about this morning. But I think church after church that dot the landscape in America today is simply lukewarm. I mean, they, they meet and, and they greet each other and they smile and they go through all the motions. The preacher preaches, the teacher teaches, the song leader leads the singing. All that goes on and that's all good. But folks, where's the, where's the hotness? Where's the fervor? I mean, where, where's the heartburn that we used to have for the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ would prefer us to boil or freeze rather than simmer down to an insensitive lukewarmness. Outright rejection of the faith is better than the insensitivity to it that the Laodiceans had. To profess Christianity while remaining untouched by its fire is a disaster for the church and for the world. Their coolness, their aloofness, their self-centeredness was a denial of the meaningfulness of Christ and what he had done. They said they believed what he had done but lived like it was unimportant in their life. Our inner spiritual fire is always in constant danger of dying down. Now, I was raised in a home that had an old pot-bellied stove. I'm talking about the old house that's across the road from where I was raised. The first eight years I lived in an old white house, I mean, it had no insulation. And you wake up in the morning and you'd have to knock the frost off of your pants to get them on. And you'd walk out to that old pot-bellied stove and you'd jerk that door open and look down in there, there'd be a few coals down in there. I grabbed the old long poker and I began to stir those coals up. Yes. And after I stirred those coals up, then I put a little kindling on yeah. there. Yeah. Maybe a little dried bark if I could find it. And then when that fire would finally begin to take off, I began to throw dry wood in it. You put green wood in it. You put the fire out. You put that old dry wood in there. And after a while, it began to burn and that stove began to pop and the room would begin to warm up. Listen, our spiritual fire needs to be poked. It needs to be fed. It needs to be fanned into a flame. The idea of being on fire for Christ will strike some people as emotionalism. I'm not talking about being fanatical. I'm not talking about fanaticism that's unreasonable and unintelligent. It's action without reflection. What Jesus Christ desires and deserves is a reflection which leads to commitment. If Jesus is true... If Jesus is the Son of God who became flesh, if He died for our sins and was raised from the dead, if Christmas Day and Good Friday and Easter Day are more than meaningless holidays, then nothing less than our wholehearted commitment to Christ is going to matter. Are you wholeheartedly committed to Him today? You know, a lot of marriages are failing today because people aren't wholeheartedly committed to it. You know, they're halfway committed. Well, as long as she or he does what I want them to do, then I'll be committed to it. When they fail to do that, then my commitment is gone. This means putting Christ first in our private and public life, seeking His glory and obeying His will. Better for you and I to be icy in our rejection than to insult Him and the gospel with half-hearted indifference that communicates to the world that it holds little significant value to you and I. Compromising what he did, uh, what he died for, is an insult which causes him to experience repulsing nausea down deep. Notice verse 16. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now I want you to get, get that passage of Scripture, verse 16. A strong warning here is given to the spiritually indifferent. It's repugnant to the Lord for you to be lukewarm. Kind of like, I don't like lukewarm coffee. 
I like it hot. Some people like iced coffee, but I like hot coffee. Now, Jesus' repugnancy is expressed in a descriptive fashion. He said, I will spew you out of my mouth. That means to vomit. Over Christmas, Ramona and I spent our first Christmas sick. I told her, I don't know what next Christmas will be. I may be dead by then. But I said, all we could do was to vomit. And I could hear her in there, uh, uh, I said, can I help you? She says, you stay out of here. She said, I don't need you in here for nothing. So, so I didn't go in there. But lukewarm Christianity makes God that sick. He said, I see that. I wonder how many churches he sees that in today. He says, I see that lukewarmness. Makes me sick at my stomach. He didn't take any Pepto-Bismol. He just goes ahead and vomits. I'd hate to be a man that made God vomit, wouldn't you? I'd hate to go to a church that would make God vomit. A church that made God sick. If you're not moved or unaroused by the gospel of his life and death and resurrection, then you make him sick. Jesus died for us. He went to the cross. No, it wasn't that little picture that you see, a little blood trickling down his arm, trickling down his head, a few little drops of blood. It wasn't that. He shed his blood. When they took him down, I don't think he had an ounce of blood left in him. I believe he gave his all. He gave it all. Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay 75%. He paid it all upon the cross. John Wesley and his friends found that out. That's having so many others before and since. But enthusiasm is an essential part of Christianity. Christ approves of it, even if the church does not. Verse 17, read that. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Affluence has put the church to sleep. Affluence. You know what that is? Riches. It has literally put the church to sleep. The members of that church were wealthy in material goods, but they were spiritually starving to death. They were poor spiritually. The lack of spiritual receptivity, devotion, and faith in God manifested in a lukewarm state. It's revealed in the exaltation of material wealth in contrast to spiritual riches. The Laodiceans were prosperous as far as material goods were concerned. I think it's a problem with the Church of America today. We are richer than any society has ever been. Richer than any generation's ever been. And yet, probably more poor as far as our spiritual condition is concerned. Christ quotes into boasting, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Christ needed to be blunt to open their eyes to their true spiritual condition, to their complacent, self-secure Christians. So he tells them that their true condition that you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They thought they were rich. Jesus said, you're far from it. Jesus said, you're not rich. He said, you're, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. They're blind because they have no idea of their true poverty or spiritual condition. A black preacher one time said, a good money of his congregation will be lost because they were too generous. The people looked at him and they thought he misspoke. He said, no, I didn't misspeak. He said, perhaps you think I made a mistake. But he said, I meant just what I said. You give away too many sermons. You hear a sermon and you pass it back to the people behind you. And they've heard it and they pass it on back. 
and the people behind them heard it and they passed it on back. It's not long until it's at the back seat and then all of a sudden nobody back there to pass it to and so it's out the door and it's gone. How many sermons have we done? The pastor prepares sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. And Wednesday night sermons have been good. I'll tell you, they've been, they've been great. And I'll tell you what, a lot of times we just say, well, that was for old brother so-and-so. And look around at, well, they're not here. Isn't that a shame? They're not here to listen to the message. Well, maybe they're not, but you're here. And I'm here. And the message is for each one of us. The message is for all of us. And so a good many listen for the people behind them and they pass it over a shoulder till it goes out the door. Notice in verse 18 and 19, we see the command. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment, thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Now the Lord here is giving some advice or counsel. And he gives those who will receive it some advice for eternity. I don't see how you can read this passage of Scripture as a child of God and not be moved in some fashion. I mean, it moves me. We have a God who's content to give advice to His creation. He's the Lord of an expanding universe. He has countless galaxies and stars at His fingertips. He is the creator and sustainer of all things, the Lord God Almighty. He has the right to issue orders for us to obey, but instead, He doesn't give us a command. He gives us advice which we do not have to heed. Did you know today if you're here and you're lost, you don't have to be saved? God's not going to grab you by the collar. The Holy Spirit's not going to grab you by the nap of the neck and bring you up here and say, now you repent. You get right with me. The Holy Spirit will come and will move upon you and will impress upon you the need of salvation. And if you don't listen to the Holy Spirit of God, you can walk out of here lost as a goose. And nothing God can do about it. God will not make you be saved. God will make you obey His Word, even as a child of God. He respects individual responsibility and the freedom of choice. What then is His advice? He counsels them to buy from Him. The emphasis is that what you need will only come from God. They must no longer trust in their riches, but come to Him for eternal riches. They're not your treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, but put your treasures in heaven. They can show themselves self-sufficient, but they must humbly find their sufficiency in Jesus Christ. They were well endowed with the riches of the earth. What they needed, they could not buy. They were obtained gold from Christ, that is, the true riches, and more specifically, that which corresponds to the glory of God Himself. The church here is summoned to cover her nakedness with garments of purity and sincerity washed white in the blood of the Lamb. I was asked one time how that being washed in the red blood of Jesus made you whiter than snow. I said, I can't explain it. Neither can I explain how a black and white cow can eat green grass and produce white milk, but it happens. That's out of my league, okay? That's out of my pay grade. But God, somewhere or another, allows the red blood of Jesus Christ that He shed on the cross to forgive us of our sin. They were blind to the things of God. They were blind and could not see Christ at the door, bidding them to repent. Knocking at the door. Now, he was knocking at the door of the Laodicean church, but also he was knocking on the door of individuals' hearts. 
You see, individuals made up the church. If the individuals were not right with God, then the church couldn't be right with God. Let them come to Jesus. He can reach their poverty, clothe their nakedness, and heal their blindness. He can open their eyes to perceive a spiritual world which they've never dreamed about. He can cover their sin and shame and make them fit to partake of the inheritance of the saints. He can save and sanctify them. He's died for them and risen again. I notice verse 19. He tells us why he's concerned about them. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus is concerned for our spiritual condition because it loves us. Jesus even loves the lukewarm saints. He just wanted to set you on fire. He wanted to build a fire on you. He wanted to stir those coals up and, and throw some kindling on you and get you excited about the things of God. He planned to reprove and discipline them as proof of His love. Discipline means to train. You discipline your children. You train them. You bring them in line, hopefully with the Word of God. You educate them as you correct them. Rebuke and discipline are evidence that you are a true child of God. Obviously, this commandment of love is not addressed to the unsaved. A lady in England was out riding one day in her car, and she saw a shepherd who had some dogs driving the sheep. If the sheep would go along and they would stop and begin to drink out of a water hole, uh, the shepherd would sick the dogs on them. And she would say, oh, you cruel man, you need to let the sheep stop and drink because they're thirsty. By and by, the shepherd came to a beautiful park. He opened up the gate to that park and let all the sheep in there. The grass was knee high. It was fresh grass, sweet grass. And a beautiful river running right through the park. And she said, he is not a cruel shepherd after all. He didn't want them to eat alongside the road because that's where the enemy resides. That's where the wolf and the lion and the bear can come out and devour those sheep. He was only trying to get them to a better place. Jesus rebukes us and reproves us not because he doesn't love us, but because he wants to move the church, this church and every church, to a better place and a better state of spirituality and maturity. I begin to look at verse number 19 again. Notice his command to be zealous and immediately repent. Let them then be fired up with zeal. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. They were complacent. They had compromised but they need to be replaced with humility and repentance. To repent is to turn with resolution from all that is known that is contrary to God's will. The church of Laodicea, in that church we have to renounce the old life with its complacency to Jesus in spiritual matters. They were smug. They were self-satisfied. It was not appropriate for one who bears the name of Jesus Christ. Shallow esteem never saved anyone. We must break away from complacent, compromising attitudes. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant theologian whose sermons had an overwhelming impact on those who heard him. One in particular was his famous sinners in the hand of an angry God. He preached that one Sunday morning. It moved hundreds to repentance and salvation. As a matter of fact, many people say that that sermon message sparked the revival known as the Great Awakening. From a human standpoint, it seemed incredible that such a far-reaching result could come from one message. Edward did not have a commanding voice. 
He did not have an impressive pulpit manner. He used very few gestures and he read from my manuscript. And yet God's Spirit moved upon the listeners with conviction and power. Let me tell you why that happened. John Chapman gives us a story. He says, for three days, Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food. For three nights, he had not closed his eyes in sleep. Over and over again, he was heard to pray, Oh, Lord, give me New England. Oh, God, give me New England. Over and over, he would pray those very words. When he rose from his knees and made his way into the pulpit that Sunday, they said he looked as if he had been gazing straight into the face of God. Even before he began to speak, tremendous conviction fell upon his audience. Let's confess our spiritual lethargy and lack of love and ask God to make us zealous for the lost. Let us ask God for a fire to fall once again on our church and land. Be zealous if you desire to see souls saved and converted. If you wish to place crowns upon the head of the Savior and see His throne lifted high, then be filled with zeal. The world will be converted by the zeal of the church. Prudence, knowledge, patience, and courage will follow in their places, but zeal must lead to charge. Notice in verse 20 and 21 and 22, we see the commitment. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Probably the greatest invitation possible is contained there in verse number 20. All who will hear, Christ gives an invitation. You may be listening online today and this invitation is for you. You may be sitting here in this congregation this morning. And you hear the invitation and you feel the drawing and the pulling of the Holy Spirit of God. We as a church and we as individuals must invite Christ to come in and become the center of heartfelt worship, adoration, and love. The opportunity is ours to accept or to reject. Christ says, if anyone, he says, if any man, that means any man, woman, boy, or girl, if anyone, here's that knock. If anyone hears my voice, are you listening today? Not to me. Are you listening to the Holy Spirit of God? Are you listening to the Word of God this morning? Hear this appeal personally. It's addressed to the church, but also applies to individuals. It applies to me and you. Christ says, if anyone, God doesn't force himself upon anyone. No one is ever saved against their will. Won't you think about that? No one's ever saved against their will. And no one is compelled to obey who wants to be rebellious. Our heart or soul is likened to a dwelling place. We must open the door of our life to Christ. If Pastor Reds comes to my house and knocks on the door, I have a decision to make. Do I go to the door and open it up and let him in? Do I let him stand outside and continue to knock until he gets discouraged and goes back to his truck and gets in it and goes home? What about you? Is God knocking on your heart's door today? You may be sitting there chewing your gum and popping your gum and wondering how long this sermon's going to last. I don't know. It'll, it'll last when I get done, I suppose. Let me tell you something. If God is dealing with your heart today, don't say, well, I'll be back tonight. That's right. Listen to Brother Jeremy preach and I'll get right then. You may not live to make it out the door. That's right. I hope you do, but you may not. I've known people that left revival services that raised their hand they need to be saved. And going out the door, Pastor Kelly, they would say, well, I'll be back tomorrow night. They wouldn't be back tomorrow night. You know why? They were dead. 
they were dead. Don't refuse the leading of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Open your life to Him and let Him take control. We must surrender to His Lordship. We must submit to His will and word and freely, lovingly obey Him. I'm not talking about just attending religious services or leading a decent life or believing a creed. It's opening our lives to Him, letting Him be who He is, Lord of life in you and I. If we open the door of our life to Jesus and let Him in, He will bring an end to our spiritual poverty. He will change us from a pauper to a prince. He will cleanse and clothe us. He will sup with you, and you will be able to sup with Him. Day after day, this loving Father came to the hospital. Often He would bring flowers in His hand. He had a six-year-old daughter that was comatose. He would sit down in the chair beside her bed. He would talk to her. He would pray with her. He would tell her about the wonderful world that was outside her windows. Sometimes he would tell her a story. She wasn't hearing a thing. She was just lying there. In her unconscious state, the only sound she ever made was her labored breathing. One day her nurse, touched by the father's face, must venture to say, it must be hard giving so much love when she's like this. He quickly responded, I'm going to keep on coming and bringing fire and telling her stories, even if she never hears, because I love her whether she loves me back or not. Isn't that the picture of God? Jesus loves us whether we love him back or not. You can curse Jesus to his face. You can call him anything you want to call him. And let me tell you something. He still loves you. He still loves you. For God so loved the world, I don't understand through John 3.16. I don't think any preacher could preach the depths of John 3.16. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How many of you have sons? Would you be willing to give your son like Jesus did, like God did? Probably not. Probably not. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a tender picture of God's love. He's in love with us patiently, untiringly. We may be unaware of His presence as though we are spiritually comatose, but we don't have to stay that way. He says, I stand at the door and knock. He may knock on your door this afternoon. He may knock on your door in the middle of the night. I remember before I was saved, I, I didn't audibly hear the voice of God, but it seemed that God would speak to me through the Holy Spirit. And Ridge, one thing I, I seemed like I got a vision of as a young boy, I got a vision of something that reminded me of hell. And boy, I tell you what, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I could not go back to sleep. Just a little old boy thinking about hell. I didn't know everything about it, but I knew I didn't want to go there. I knew the only way that I could not go there was to give myself over to Jesus Christ and to let Him save me. When our loving Lord said to the church of Laodicea, as He says to each one of us, stand at the door and knock, if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Then verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even though I also am overcome and am set down with my Father in His throne. This prospect seemed to exceed all other promises to the overcomer and glory. A throne is a symbol of conquest. A throne is a symbol of authority and royal honor. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 28, 
The Bible says, Jesus said, And very last unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, he also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The throne shared with Christ is the highest honor conceivable for a Christian. The honor is for those who overcome as Christ overcame. Christ overcame by the way of obedience even unto death and sets the pattern for his followers. Listen, you may face difficulties. You may face difficult circumstances, but never forget the cross. Christ was victorious there at the cross. He was not defeated. I mean, it looked like, you know, when he died and said it is finished, his disciples fled. It looked like it was all over with. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. The plan of salvation had been paid for. Nothing you or I can do to add or subtract from that plan of salvation. And the person of salvation, who's Jesus Christ. They need not fear. They that are called to overcome the world, as far as Christ conquered, they too will conquer. Verse 22 concludes the letter. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith uh, to the churches. I want everybody to reach around here and grab this little object here that's sticking out the side of your head. Some of you have two of them. <laughs> he didn't say if you have two ears. He that hath an ear. If you have one ear, he says, listen to what I say. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Listen, he loved this church. Amen. He loves this church. He loves every church that's out there that's much like the church here that I preached about this morning. The church of Laodicea. He wants them to get on fire for God. He wants them to stop the complacency. He wants them to stop just, you know, just coming to church and going through the motions. He wants them to be, he wants them to be on fire. He wants them to preach the truth of God's Word. I think one reason we don't see revival today, whether it's the Asbury Revival or whatever you're talking about, the Word of God's not preached. Reggie and I started preaching over 40 years ago. Every church in this country used the King James Bible. I remember when the NIV started coming in. I called it the New Ignorant Version. I know that's not what they call it, but that's what I call it. And it seemed like it took off like wildfire. You know why? That's one of the devil's Bibles. Anytime the devil can get between the true Word of God, he wants to do it. Churches begin to go backwards. Denominations begin to go backwards. I remember when Free Will Baptist started printing the NIV along beside the King James Bible in their literature. Now, why did they do that? Well, they knew they couldn't just switch overnight. So they put the NIV, they put the NIV on one side and the King James on the other side. When I went to Brushenob Church over 20 years ago now, they had that kind of uh, Sunday school material. And the first thing I did, I gathered it all up, tore it all up, and made a fire out of it. The next Sunday they come into the church, where's our Sunday school stuff? I said it went up in flames. I said I sent it back to hell where it came from. I got a little grief over that. Just a little bit. I said, folks, you cannot listen to both of them. You have to choose one or the other. 
and I'm your pastor, it's going to be the King James. Amen. And if you can't swallow that, bye. Amen. Hit the road, Jack. Don't come back no more, no more. The church began to grow. There wasn't two different voices right. they were listening to. Right. Just one. That's right. Wasn't two different Bibles that they were trying to read. Just one. Amen. I don't even like to call them Bibles. Right. Yep. I don't know what to call them. Yeah. Trash? No. That pretty much covers it. Trash. That's where those books went. But notice there, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Take heart to what he's written is what he's saying. Although a different message was addressed in each church, in the message is a warning and exhortation for every church of every age. The church of, of Laodicea reminds me of the legend of King Midas. The story goes in the legend of King Midas, in return for acts of kindness performed for the gods, King Midas's wish was granted that everything he touched should turn to gold. That worked pretty good for a while until he began to touch his food. His food would turn to gold before he get in his mouth. He'd reach out and get a glass of water. It would turn to gold before he get up and drink it. He finally realized, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to starve to death. I'm going to literally starve to death because everything I touch turns to gold. The church in Laodicea was wealthy, but it was a false prosperity. They needed to trade the, the robes of self-satisfaction and complacency for the white robes of a new commitment to Jesus Christ. Many times the door of the human heart is barred shut. I hope yours is not this morning. I hope today that your door is wide open and the Holy Spirit has complete access to your heart. Because let me tell you something. I believe that the time is drawing near when Jesus is going to return. He's going to set things in order. Jesus knocks at the, at the night time with a lantern of conviction in His hand, but with mercy on His face. He stands at every heart's door seeking to claim it for His own. The question is, will you open your heart to Him today? Will you listen to Him as He knocks upon your door? Letting the lure of possessions and power make us unwilling to hear His invitation to commitment? If it does, then we're in big trouble. A loving God would have men hear and believe and turn from their idols of sin and self. In faith, open up their life to the Son of God who loved them and gave Himself for them. Stand with me this morning, if you will. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord, today that You deal with the hearts that are here. Not every person that's here today needs something. Some, no doubt, need salvation. Others may need a closer walk with you. Maybe some have grown complacent and cold, much like the church that I preached about this morning. But God, whatever the situation is, I pray that you just take that situation and you change it in each life that's present here this morning. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what you're going to do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.